uh, it's the wintering grounds of the largest continuous herd of bighorn sheep in the United States. We're talking about 70, maybe 80 sheep. This decent little buck appears out of nowhere. You just see antlers just emerging from behind a hill. He was so pissed off. His ears were completely laid down against his neck. We've all seen signs of the rut, but not like this. Welcome to another episode of Wild and Exposed, your wildlife photography and outdoor adventure podcast. Today, we have all four hosts in the house. We have Michael Morrow, Doug Gardner, Ron Hayes, and myself, Mark Raycroft. Hey, guys, how's it going? Doug, what's new? Oh, man, it's, uh, it's a great time of year to be out shooting. Well, I left South Carolina a few weeks ago, went out west. It was summertime when I left here, and it came back to South Carolina, and now it's winter. And uh, so it was quite a shock for me. But what's winter for you? Well, winter, for, <laughs> it's all relative, right? So uh, right. 40, de 40 degrees high during the day and 20 at night. So. Is it still humid out there when it's 40 degrees? Oh, yeah. It's always so that's humid. Cold. That's that makes cold. It cold. Oh, it I makes think it real cold. worse when you're in humid, cold temperatures than 40 degrees in Denver is like T-shirt. Oh, yeah. When I'm in Wyoming shooting up in the mountains, it'll be negative 10 um and it, it feels like 20 degrees here you guys yep. are confusing me so much right now because 40 <laughs> in canada is smoking hot <laughs> we don't get that except july and august fahrenheit <laughs> fahrenheit just for those canadian listeners i had to throw that curveball in there <laughs> so uh we had freezing rain the other day here in Denver, which we never get. I mean, I think it's pretty common out east, especially southeast. I'm, I would say you get freezing rain, right, Doug? Oh, yeah. We get, we get freezing rain and sleet, yeah. I was out shooting, and my truck was covered in just, like, sheets of ice. And, you'd, you know, I couldn't get out the back window. I was having a scraper that I would lean over and scrape off my mirrors because it just kept getting coated. And it's just a rare, rare thing for us. So it's been pretty cold, but then we're back to warm and then cold and warm. And it's getting up as high as 60 Fahrenheit. Wow. <clears throat> Still for us, but then it gets cold too. But the, the thing is, you head up, what, an hour into the mountains, and those guys are just getting tons of snow. I saw some snow reports, and a lot of the ski areas were getting 20-plus inches. So That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. Fun time for the weekend. Yep. Yeah, this is the time of year where you stay. If you're a skier, you're on I-70. If not, you just don't get on I-70 because it's just bumper to bumper with skiers going up to have some fun. Jeez. Mm. How about you, Ron? What's up? It has been uneventful. I've had opportunity to go chase deer, to go chase, well, go chase deer in two different directions. And then uh, also bighorn sheep are starting to starting to move, starting to come down into lower country. And I got a report of a mountain lion right Woo! close to town, um, uh. denned up with two cubs. So I have been trying to figure out a way to get images or video of this cat because she has picked an optimal spot to stay concealed. It's Really? It's in this little draw. It's, it's real steep draw, so you can't see into it unless you're right in front of it. 
And if you're right in front of it, you're behind about, you know, six foot. Well, to me, it seems like six foot to you guys and might not <laughs> of uh, mount, mountain mahogany. So it's tough to even get a glimpse of her and impossible to see the, the young ones. What kind of distance are we talking about? Well, I haven't, I haven't tried to find out what her tolerance is because I can't figure out a way to, to get to any point where I can see in. Mm-hmm. Um, so far, I mean, at, at 150, 200 yards, she's fine. If she, if she wanted to come without me seeing, I think she probably could, but she stays fairly visible on uh, the few times I've been up there, but nothing that's photographable. I mean, you might get half of her face, but she's 200 yards away. So yeah, it's a tough scenario, but so it's, it's neat to, it's neat to be able to see and need to be able to be in that situation. And, mm-hmm. I, you know, no idea how long she'll be there. There's a herd of elk that's right close right now. Um, and then of course there's a lot of deer in the area. So she's got no reason to leave unless she's pressured. So I want to be really careful. Yeah. Well, you know, I was just wondering if you know, this kind of situation where you could, you know, you, if you even at a distance, you could catch her coming and going, even though you can't see her actually going into her den site. Yeah. The issue is seeing her move. It's in between all those mountain mahogany. It's really thick. Mm. I'll try to dig out a little clip to put in the show notes of her just moving between the two bushes. And that's all. That's all. Wow. It's, so it's tough. Even from but, an environmental perspective, it's, it just doesn't lend itself with that. Yeah. Thing. You know, Mike was close enough to maybe be able to come up and get some video. And, you know, Doug was in the state last week, but I'm not sure it's really worth the, worth the trip unless, you know, we can find a way or find an angle somewhere. Keep us yeah. posted. That's exciting yeah, if it works out, right? Wow. Yeah. And if she stays, I know, you know, there was a cat in Jackson that had a couple of young ones a few years back and mm-hmm. she stayed right on the same hillside for a good month. And yeah. That was, was the one time. with, um, that Tom Mangelson found right there at Miller's yeah. Butte. And, uh, yeah, that, that turned into a circus real quick. Cause it, yeah. you know, he, he found it and, uh, and started camping out on it literally. And within days, people, there were hundreds upon hundreds of photographers coming in from all over the world. And this cat, she dinned up, I mean, it's not 75 yards from the road and it wasn't 25, 30 feet up. And so nothing in the way, perfect view. And she just, you know, stayed there with, with her young ones, uh, right there in full view. People just hundreds of photographers lined up the road and stayed there night and day. And, you know, she raised them successfully, but it was really an unusual year for the elk. Most of the elk were really staying close to Miller's Butte rather than the other end of the National uh, Elk Refuge. So that made it very convenient for her to feed and not leave her little ones, you know, too far behind. Otherwise, she would have had to travel the entire length of the Elk Refuge, which is, gosh, I think it's close to, I'm not going to be right on the acreage, but eight or 10,000 acres at least. So that's a long ways away to go make a kill and bring it back, you know, for the little ones. So, yeah. uh, so this is not going to be that type of situation. If I figure out yeah. a way to photograph her, I'm going to be by myself. So. <laughs> I don't that's, blame you. You know, that's, they, better. You know, that's yeah. an awesome, that's, that's still an awesome 
find you know i mean so many yeah. times we run across things that are awesome but you just can't figure out a way to capture it on on film you know it's yeah. just you, you know it's just one of those things you can sit back and go boy that's really nice and that's all i can do with it if you're out filming cats like if you had an assignment for from bbc doug this is one of those deals where you're just going to camp out there for as long as it takes right you know, but you're getting paid every day to be out there. And when you're not getting paid to be every day to be out there, it's really hard to That's dedicate right. 30 days to try to find, you know, because if the den is concealed and you don't want to screw that up for her, so you got to keep your right. distance. You're not going to, you know, you're not going to jeopardize that. So then it's your thought process that you went to immediately. It's like, well, can you see her coming in and out? Or can you right. see her when she travels over this saddle? Or can you see her when she's doing whatever? But that just takes a lot of time to figure out. And then you also want to be really careful that you don't bugger her off of those routes, you know? So. Yeah. It's a tough call. It's a tough call. It's where, you know, time in the field and your field craft comes into play. And so, yeah, you don't want to do anything to jeopardize that, but also you have a job to try to do what you need to do to put in the time and, and get it and get the shot. But you know, it doesn't always happen. So. Right. Yep. So Ron's gonna call me if if it looks like it's doable, and <laughs> we'll we'll try to get after least get he some calls footage me. Of. But you know what's kind of cool is just even seeing a cat. I mean, how many right. people in oh, this world absolutely. actually have seen a wild mountain lion? Yeah. You yeah. know, there's yeah. just not a lot. Yeah. That's that's number four, five, and six. Oh really? <laughs> if you if you count the two young ones, yeah. Yeah. So it's and well, that's from a Wyoming boy who grew up yeah. in Wyoming and in prime cat. Country. Habitat. Yeah. Oh yeah. You know they're there. You see tracks all the time, but you hardly ever see the cat. And that yeah, that's a and that this will I don't know if I'm jumping the gun here. I don't know if we've made it all the way around the horn, but that is my pro tip for the week. Nope, you can't do that yet. No, no. Pro tip will come, man. You're gonna resurrect that. This doesn't need to be not need to be corrected. You just have to resurrect that and jump in at the time. Okay. All right, I'm gonna shut all up right. then. No, it's all right. <laughs> All good. And so today's podcast, Doug is going to take us to Wyoming, where he spent three weeks filming a documentary on bighorn sheep, as well as running two photo workshops. And he'll take us behind the scenes with that fun experience that he just recently returned from. But before we launch into that, I want to remind all of you that no matter what platform you're listening to us on, to follow along, subscribe, and take the time, please, to give us a positive review with a five-star rating or the thumbs up that helps us to do what we love to do and to bring you these podcasts and this exciting content on a week-to-week -week basis. And follow us along, whether it be Instagram, Facebook, all platforms on, for podcasts. And you can find the most material that we put up on our website at wildandexposed.com. Now, the new segment that we started re recently, we're going to hop into that where we all offer a pro tip to give something back to our audience because we appreciate your time. And we will start with Doug. All right, I get to be first at something. Hot dog. All right, pro tip number one, get your pens and paper out. Follow focus. Da, 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 da. That is something that most photographers don't even know about these days. I came from the world of slide film and completely manual cameras. Now, the number one thing that I love to photograph the most and film is waterfowl, ducks, geese, and swans of all types. And uh, they are very fast flyers. And so 
growing up, I didn't, there was no such thing as autofocus. So if you were going to photograph ducks or geese or swans in flight, you had to be able to follow focus. That means being able to manually focus that camera on a moving subject and ducks are very fast. So how did I learn to do that? And people even today say, well, you don't follow focus anymore. Well, yes, I do. I, even with my still camera and with the video. With video, you have to because pro video cameras don't have any autofocus uh, capability anyway. So you have to know how to follow focus. But even with still cameras, I've got a 1DX Mark II sitting on the shelf right behind me. And I still manually follow focus when I'm shooting because that's what I learned to do at an early age. So how do you learn to do it? I got... My camera went down and sat in a chair by the highway and focused on automobiles as they came toward me, passed by me, and went away. And I would I did it for probably days, maybe even weeks, with no film in the camera, just tripping the shutter and turning the barrel, turning the barrel, and learning to be able to look at a subject kind of estimate how fast it's going and how much I need to turn that focus barrel to keep up with the movement of the car coming by. And when I got to the point that I actually felt like I was able to keep something in focus, that's when I actually put film in the camera and started actually testing to see how good I was getting at it. And that's how I learned to do it. The key to that, however, is to know which way the focus barrel turns depending on whether your subject is coming to you or going away from you. So, you know, way most of us acquire focus is to kind of rock the focus barrel back and forth, back and forth real quick and finally kind of narrow the amount that you, you turn it down to little small increments until the subject just kind of cracks into focus. Well, it's the same way you want to do that initially and then if you know which way to turn the barrel, like on my Canon cameras, I know for a subject coming towards me, the lens turns clockwise for a subject that's coming toward me. I need to focus clockwise. And another way, I, I keep things very simple. So in my mind, I couldn't never remember quickly how far what clockwise and counterclockwise was. So I, I always focus with my left hand. And when I turn my thumb up, when my thumb goes up as I'm focusing, that's clockwise. Thumbs up, closer. Subject closer, always better, right? Thumbs up. So that's the way I remember to do it. So learn how to learn which way your focus barrel turns for a subject going further away from you or coming to you. Get out on the side of the road, practice focusing on cars, and you will learn how to do it. Now, why is that important when you got all the focus now? Well, it's important because not every situation in today's world, will you be able to use autofocus? If you're shooting through brush, if you're through, shooting through heavy snowfall, those are all things that will trick or fault your autofocus. If you're videoing, this is something that is a must that you learn how to do, or you're dead in the water from the get-go. Video cameras are all manual focus, so that's your pro tip. I give a big thumbs up to that pro tip. Uh, well, <laughs> let done, me man. just add a couple of things because I know right. we're going to get emails over this. <laughs> you said all pro cameras are manual focus, and I would say most of them are for sure. But there are a few. There's like the Canon C300 that actually That's has true. autofocus, and then and I would consider that a kind of a pro camera. And then there's also for video, 
you taught me this when we were shooting that mountain lion thing down in Florida or the Florida Panther thing. So we use the focus wheels right. on our big lenses. So we're not actually grabbing the barrel. We're grabbing a hold of what do you, what's the actual term for that? So follow, well, they actually call that a follow focus, follow unit. focus, right? So yeah. it runs off a of gear. So it's twisting your lens barrel. I have it set up, which you, you made a suggestion down there. I'm like, that's pretty dang smart. So when I twist it forward, that's the animals going away. Right. And when I'm bringing it to me, then the animals it's coming so my way. Right. And that's my thing when I'm out there manually focusing. And then with like the red camera or I'm not even sure about the airy, but a lot of these, these big video cameras, it is, it's all manual focus. So yeah. I like right it. On. Good tip. My tip awesome. is going to suck compared to that one. Let's hear it. Throw it out right. there, Michael. So Don't I've got eat props. Yellow snow. I've got props. So anybody <laughs> listening to this, anybody listening to this is going to have to look at the website to see what I'm talking about. But I think you'll know when I say it. I'm just really anal about my gear. So I have gear that is seven, ten years old, and there's no scratches on it. You know, you're going to get a scratch here and there when you're out in the woods. But I am really careful with my stuff because you spend a lot of money on this stuff, right? So. You know, when you go to an event, they're always giving away free koozies, right? So you get a free koozie. So I, you know, free, I don't use koozies. I don't drink a lot of beer, right? So I'm, or pop or whatever. So I'm not trying to keep stuff cold very often. And people are always trying to give me these. I'm like, nah, I don't need that. And then one day I was, as I'm packing my stuff and you, you know, when we go out and do a shoot, we're taking tons of little extra stuff, extra batteries, chargers, all these little extra things, right? Well, I started figuring out that you could put a charger inside one of these koozies and then you got yourself a little padding and you don't have to go out and buy yourself a little bag or whatever and it's lightweight and it protects it. So I use that for, I put filters in them, I put my chargers in them, I put batteries in them, it's great. So if you go to an event where you get in a koozie and all the guys that I work with, they know that I collect these. So everywhere, you know, it's like I get piles of them. Every three or four weeks, people will hand me a pile of these things, and I just it works awesome. You know, I wish they made them bigger because then you could put all kinds of stuff in them. But for little stuff, it's perfect. So that's my pro tip. Great, cool, awesome. And he, hold on, and he is, I can verify, he is anal about his equipment. <laughs> I was riding with him down this dusty dirt road in Florida, and we were trying, I was trying to get the mosquitoes out. Uh, so I cracked the window. He about had a fit. Roll that window up. Roll that window up. There's dust getting in my truck, man. <laughs> yeah, that's because I'm always about... finding dust on the sensor. I'm like, ah. <laughs> All right, Ron, let's hear it. All right. So mine's not, it's not gear related. It's not technique related. Um, and this goes back to, I don't I don't remember which one of you said it. I think Doug said it, that was a great find. And it was, but it wasn't me that found it. So Yo, going you're back referring to, to the to the, the mountain, the mountain line, line. Yeah. And and for that matter, a lot of different species and a lot of opportunities that that we get into don't come from us. You can't be everywhere, right? So my pro tip is is building a network and not necessarily building a network of photographers. You're gonna have, you know, those people that you go out with, those people that you know that are willing to give you information. And then you're going to have some that aren't, of course, and that's that's their prerogative. Um, but building a network goes far beyond that. It's landowners. There's a lot of private land in Wyoming. 
uh, building that network of landowners that not only know you, but trust you and not only trust you, but who, you know, you might go help them brand, you might go help them fix fence, you might go help them do some things. And then those opportunities are going to get fed to you quite a lot more often. This one came from a friend of mine who just, he trusts me to do the right thing. He trusts me to, you know, not, not drive the wildlife out. We've been around each other in the woods and he knows that I'm a, I'm a patient person and I'm not going to go diving into some, something and, and ruin it for him. So uh, he's the one that fed me this information. And I, you know, I worked with a lot of the game wardens around the state. I know a lot of the game wardens and biologists. Sometimes they're the toughest ones because they don't want to increase the amount of pressure on animals. But again, if you build that rapport, build that trust with those type of people, the opportunities are going to come to you far more often in places that, you know, you might never have even gone into before. So the, the pro tip is just to build the network. And, you know, with the four of us, obviously, that's that's a piece of a network as well. Mm-hmm. And then we've all got those little spider webs of network people, you know, that are extensions of ourselves that we're going to get information from. And then we can, you know, you can share with the people that you want to share it with. We're tight-lipped with locations because of, you know, the potential pressure to animals. But uh, building the network and it, you know, this is not something that happens overnight. It's something that's going to take you years, if not decades. But but it's critical to being successful as a wildlife photographer, videographer, cinematographer. Well, that's what I was going to add to your your thing, Ron, is it's trust, right? So you've got to build that trust, especially with like game wardens or or biologists is if, if you're going to go in and screw up their work, they're dang sure not going to let you go in and, or yeah. even tell you about anything. But once you prove that you're not a, a problem and you totally respect the wildlife and, you know, and, and it sometimes it takes three or four situations for them to really say, Oh, you know, these, this person knows what they're doing. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's um, and a lot of times if, uh, you know, when you're building that relationship with, you know, with game wardens or with biologists or, or whoever, park rangers, uh, a lot of times once they learn to trust you, they will also see a benefit in what you're doing to help their work. Um, I can't tell you the number of times I've, I've worked with someone and, you know, I could tell they were a little a little bit hesitant about either sharing information or taking me to a spot or whatever. And then when it was all said and done, they would call me back and say, hey, you know, the bone work we did of the white pelicans in Minnesota, you know, I've realized now that that's a way for, we can do nest counts that I never thought of before. And we don't have to disturb the birds by actually getting on the island and, and manually counting them. Would you come back and do that for us? And so, you know, a lot of times it's one hand washes the other. And in a lot of those cases, to be honest with you, I usually do it free just to yeah, keep that to yeah. really lock the deal in. So be be willing to tip. do it, even yep. though it's, it may not benefit you and what you're after footage-wise. Right. You know, it's going to be a benefit in the long run because you're willing to take that extra step and, you, you know, do something for them as they've done for you. Yeah. And that's, you know, one of the most recent, obviously the mountain lion is the most recent scenario, but last year there's a guy doing a book on sage grouse. And they had, uh, you know, on one of the leks that I that I photographed, um, and actually I didn't photograph this lek until this happened, but there was a hybrid um, sharp tail sage grouse cross, which is pretty rare mm. occurrence. 
And the head biologist in Cheyenne wanted this guy doing the book to come up and photograph. And the game warden says, no, he said, I, I've got a guy that I know that I'll let him take pictures. And then if, if they want him for the book, they can work that out. And it was, you know, it was just a matter of this guy didn't want anybody else knowing where this was and, you know, having whoever show up and with a, with a group of people mm-hmm. and force this bird out or put pressure on this bird. So, you know, that worked out in my favor as well. well that's an awesome tip, Ron. Appreciate yeah, that. want to add on that Michael and I saw your networking in effect in person last spring with their podcasts in Wyoming. And I want to, you know, for our audience that hasn't already dialed in and listened to those go back and, and because we spent many days on the Sage Gross and Sharptail Gross Lex and had a lot of fun. And yeah, it was clear that people trust you in that area. And it was to advantage our advantage on that trip, creating our podcast. Yeah. Cool. All right. So my pro tip is totally different altogether and it's about cold weather. I was in Northern Alberta the past week or so filming and a lot of that, not all of it, but a lot of it was in a ground blind and it was, I could freezing cold and now we could hop between the Celsius and Fahrenheit, but it was some days are colder than others, but minus 10 or so. And if you're going to sit there Celsius, so Fahrenheit, what's that boys? What do we got? I would say it's below freezing. It's probably in the 20s. Lost in translation. Yes, below. 15 to 20, somewhere in there. Right on. So I always layer up in these situations. And a balaclava may not be the sexiest thing people want to have, but a fleece balaclava with an open face easily fits into your pack or pocket or even two of them. So what I do is I put two of them on because one doesn't cut it. you got that extra air trapped between the two in cold weather. And you lose the most heat through your head. And what's important about this is time, right? We all know patience is directly related to our success. And so time in the field, if it's too cold and we get into the blind and we're only there for an hour and a half, we make noise getting in, noise going out, it's not going to work. To extend the time in the field, now this is going to sound funny. (laughs) Oh, good. We got 14 degrees Fahrenheit. Michael looked it up. Minus 10 Celsius. Take your hand warmers and put them on your cheeks. Now... To be clear, I'm talking about the cheeks on your face. <laughs> and how you do that is... Although... This, oh, well, then you're going to need four. So come in packs of two, and that will probably help as well. But if just by putting one in each cheek of the balaclava, so you've got this open oval around your face, so you've got your mouth and your nose out, you tuck in one of these hand warmers in either cheek, and seriously... From my experience over all these years, no matter what I'm doing in the field when it's frigid cold, it buys me a couple more hours because my whole head stays warm with those hand warmers tucked in there. So that's my tip. That makes perfect sense. Yeah, that makes perfect sense because, I mean, the heat's going to radiate up under that first layer anyway, you know, and your cheeks are lower than the top of your head anyway. So that makes perfect sense. That's good there, Mark. I took a video of it, and I will put it up on our Instagram story. And it looks funny, and it's not a fashion show, but it's effective. It can help get the photos, right? If you're there for two more hours, you've got four hours in the blind instead of a couple. It it makes a difference. So the other thing, too, my wife said I had to throw this in when we were running through the pro tip options for this week. Toe warmers. That's a big one for her. So if your feet, it's your extremities, right? You've got your hands. Another thing I do here, we're getting all kinds of tips going in. I have a light pair of fleece gloves that I wear to work the cameras. But on cold days, I keep those in big down mittens. 
So when the animal comes, I silently slip them out. My hands are warm. I've got quite a bit of time with these smaller gloves on, but in the mittens, they stay warm. And there's hand warmers in the mittens too. But toe warmers, instead of your feet getting cold, you need good insulated boots, but you can buy these ones that just stick to the bottom of your socks and keep you warm for half a day anyway as well. So go for it in the cold weather and enjoy that crisp light. That's today's pro tip from me. I want to encourage all of our listeners to interact with us on all of these platforms and give us feedback, ask questions. And based on that, we have started a new segment as of this week we're going to introduce called Question of the Week. And it came to me yesterday on Instagram from a listener who wanted to know uh, he's planning a trip to Lake Clark National Park. So one of the podcasts that we had done earlier this year was a trip to Lake Clark and all about that. And he was very keen to listen about that trip because of his plans, but he was left with a question. Now I'll direct this at you, Michael and Ron. He wants to know when he's packing his bag, whether it's gear or camera equipment, what he should pack. I mean, we know there's there's weight restrictions and limitations on the small plane heading out there. So what would you two recommend based on your experience to help this guy out for his trip this year? I would recommend strongly listening to Mike. (laughs) (laughs) When before we before we went, Mike and you know, Mike and Missy had been up there a couple of times and in talking to Mike and talking to Barrett, when you go on any wildlife excursion, the, the thing that's in the back of your mind is you got to have the long lens, right? So I kept trying to figure out because you're you're pretty limited on weight, and that's for your clothes, your gear, everything. Trying to figure out how I'm going to get my 500 up there, and Mike and Missy, or I guess I didn't I didn't know Missy real well back then, but Mike had said you don't you don't need it, you know, 70 to 200, one to four, you're good to go. And then a wide angle. And I would say that that is a pretty good toolkit right there. I mean, if you're a Nikon shooter, like I am now, 70 to 200, 200 to 500, that's going to get you 90% of the shots. But there are some instances where, you know, you're either closer to an animal or you've got these gigantic big vistas with the mountains in the background and you want to get the wide angle shot. So, don't be afraid to take a short lens with you, take a wider angle lens, but 90%, I think, and, you know, Mikey, let me know if you agree or not, in that 70 to 500 range, you're going to be good to go. Yep, I agree 100%. I think, you know, unless you want that super close eyeball shot, which, you know, has its place and has its its reason, or you want to shoot the claws or something, then, of course, the 600 is great, but... There's a time and a place for that kind of stuff. And if you're going in on a plane, a little bush plane, your limit is 50 pounds. And they weigh you, you know, when, you, when you're when you at the float plane airport in Anchorage, they'll weigh everything. They'll weigh your bags, they weigh you, and then the plane is packed accordingly. Now, sometimes you might have an extra 20, 30, 40, 50 pounds to play with. And you'll be like, oh, I wish I would have packed that because everybody else packed light. And you're going to take advantage of that extra space. But what about when you're coming out? You know, you also got to think about you're going in, you still have to come out and that situation could change because they could have, uh, you know, sometimes we'll fly in on two planes and there's a certain arrangement, but coming out, it's not exactly the same arrangement. You could be with a different set of people flying out. So then all of a sudden you could be over and guess what gets left is that heavy lens, you know, that's out there. So I've done it where I've 
chanced it and I was like, okay, you can just send it back with the next plane. That's fine. I knew the guys that ran the plane, so I was okay with letting them be responsible for that. But as far as gear goes, 100, 100 to 400 or 200 to 500 with the Nikon and 70 to 200 and like Ron said, a wide angle or 24 to 70 is probably all you need to get some of those vistas and, and you're good to go. And I would say you don't need a tripod unless you want to shoot time lapse. You know, there's still plenty of people that'll pack tripods out there too. And as with our discussion with uh, really right stuff last time you know there's plenty of lightweight tripods so i think you can get you can find a kit that's pretty darn small and, and good now i was missy just texted me while we were talking she's like bug nets <laughs> make sure you take a bug net and that is thanks missy yeah <laughs> the uh there's certain days you know some days it's it's fine there's nothing but then there was one day where we got down on the beach and it was just sand flies and it was just miserable and then they're the kind that get underneath your hat brim and they just bite a line of you know you just have a line of bites and then there's other bugs we had a person on one of the trips that got bit and she was out for two days she reacted to that bite and just couldn't you know it just froze her body one up. of so, those alaska mosquitoes that's the size of a watermelon i think it was like a white socks is no, what it was not, it's hard to say big. No, they're that big. They are that big, and they will carry you away. Um, I don't know. I, I, you know, bug net, and then I would say rain gear. Now, the other thing too is it does when it's not raining, it's really dusty. And when and when you're in Lake Clark, there's a way they do stuff. And if you listen to the podcast, I think we talked about it. But they haul you around in little trailers behind an ATV. And what happens is, is you're cruising along, and if it's dry that little trail gets dusty really fast. So you want some sort of dust cover for your camera too. You know, there it goes again, me and that equipment, right? I'm always worried about that equipment. So what I do is I pack a tarp because I don't have a fancy cover that covers my red camera, you know, fitted cover like a lot of these cameras. DSLRs have these fitted covers that are work great. But I just take a tarp, throw it over everything and then bungee cord it around the tripod and keeps the dust out when you're cruising around. The other thing, too, is you're wearing a backpack because if you do have multiple lenses, you aren't going to be rocking around with everything over your shoulders. So you're taking a backpack, but same thing, your backpack's just going to get covered with dust because, you know, when you're in the back of a pickup and you're going down a dirt road, that dust just kind of boils up and over the tailgate and all over you. Same thing in these carts. So what we were doing is taking the rain cover out of our backpacks and putting that over the backpack, and that worked for rain and for dust. So dust is an issue. Bugs are an issue. And then you want to have suitable rain gear, too, because it rains up there a lot. And you don't want to stop photographing just because it's raining, because there's a lot of cool images to be gotten during that situation. So yeah, have all like that. This. You don't need to dress warm. It's not like it's cold up there all that time of year. When you, you know, if you're going anywhere from, what, June through uh, August, it's fine. Oh, Missy, just text one more thing. Go ahead, Ron. Well, I was just going to say, as far as the tripod, the only scenario that I would say you're going to want a tripod is when – uh, these bears, when the tide goes out, the bears will go out and they'll be clamming. So if you have two bodies, I would say a tripod is your friend because you, that's the only way you're going to keep the second body out of the water. Not have to, you know, not be tempted to set it down is you can separate the tripod legs and, and just leave it sit. You have to take it with you everywhere you go. So Mike's comment about no tripod. If you're shooting with one body, don't even think about it because it is a pain in the butt to set up, take down, re-level, all that kind of stuff while you're trying to shoot when, you know, 98% of the shots can be can be done handheld very easily. 
I have a question. So if I'm going to spend that much money to go and do the brown bears at Lake Clark and have fun with it, I'm going to want to have the opportunity to do a little bit of video too, right? I mean, yeah. if if you know you're going to be 100% still photography, then the tripod isn't necessary. But if you want that video option, then try to figure out a lightweight option so that you can capture video. You're there. Get them clamming. Get them walking on the on the beach. Interact, running, playing. I mean, I assume you have time where you're sitting there and there could be cubs, you know, within range to photograph for an hour or two just frolicking that you could maybe do both stills and video. Yeah, and oftentimes you're less than 40 yards away from these guys, you know, 30 yards away from brown bears with cubs. And, yeah, they're frol they're playing, they're nursing, they're doing whatever. So, right. yeah, if you're shooting video, you definitely – Doug and I would definitely not go. And I don't go out even with the lightweight tripod. I go out with the big heavy tripod because you just got to have really solid video. But – you know, the other option is is you pay you pay to play right so you can always Amen. pay pay to have it go so you can have it sent out on the next plane or you can buy two seats you know there's ways around it it costs a little bit more money but if you if you know about it now and you, your dream is to have kick butt video from a, a trip like this you know if you're going to spend an extra 500 bucks for going and coming back for an extra seat just to get your gear out there you know, that might not be too bad because it could be a trip of a lifetime for, for a lot of people. Yeah. The other thing that Missy texted me was boots. And you are photographing on a tidal plane. So uh, that tide can go from like zero to a bunch it really fast. So you basically walk around there and everybody uses rubber boots. You know, just those little extra tufts. Everybody, you know, that's like a pretty common boot up in Alaska. Any kind of rubber boot would work. An irrigation boot, something like that. But I found these other boots. They're called Neos, N-E-O-S. And what they do is they pull over your over your hiking boot. So you're wearing your hiking boot for the support that that gives you. And then you just pull these boots over it, and they're just kind of like they're kind of like hip waders. So they'll come all the way up, and it's kind of cool having the hip waiter because, like what Ron said, if you're down photographing bears on the tidal flats, it's mud. It's like that sandy, muddy stuff, and you know you don't always want to be shooting at eye level. You want to get down as low as you can with some of these bears. So the only way you're going to do that is to kneel down. So either you just, if you're in these little calf high boots, you just know you're going to come back all muddy. But if you have hip waders on, you just kneel in the mud, and then you can wash those off when you get back to wherever you can do that, like at the lodge or whatever. So boots are pretty important, and I, I would highly recommend But you could also wear hip-high hip high waders all week. And it's not like you walk a ton. I mean, the reason I like the boots is because we do walk a lot. With Barrett's group, when I go out with him, now there's a couple lodges that run groups, so there's a lot of other people besides Barrett. But if you happen to be going with Barrett, we're walkers. We do walk a lot. So we will put on two, three, four, five miles a day. So hiking that far in a rubber boot or a hip wader is not that comfortable. So just choose your poison. Well, good job. That's a great answer, guys. And Missy, thanks. Thanks for those. So now let's jump into our main segment. I want to hear about Doug's time working on a documentary for Bighorn Sheep, because I know I love working with Bighorn Sheep, and this was the right time of year to be there for the rut and also his photo workshops, too. So, Doug, take us on an adventure, buddy. All right. Well, so I was there for about three weeks uh, in Dubois, Wyoming. And um, historically, well, historically with me being uh, the past seven or eight years, I've been going to Dubois 
because it uh, is the wintering grounds of the largest continuous herd of bighorn sheep in the United States. And these wintering grounds are just outside of Dubois. So I was there for two reasons. Um, the first uh, few days, I was trying to get footage for an upcoming documentary about bighorn sheep. And it's not just about bighorn sheep. It's going to be, I don't want to let the cat out of the bag too much, but it has a lot to do with animals and Native Americans and their relationship between the two. So I was trying to get those iconic shots of uh, bighorn sheep on rocky cliffs. Well, I've known from the past, you know, this is the place to go do it. Because the sheep come down off of the, out of the high elevation and they hang out on the rock cliffs and you're almost eye level to them. And it's just a great place. You don't have any people at all to deal with. Uh, it's just, you know, the, the backgrounds are just stunningly beautiful and, uh, and you got a ton of sheep right there. So I planned the trip and, uh, while I was there, I had also planned to do two workshops back to back with a buddy of mine, Jared Lloyd. So we got there and in the past, the first of November is when they start really getting the heavy snows, uh, at high elevation in that area. And the significance behind the snowfall is that the more it snows at high elevation, the more their food becomes covered up. Therefore, they're forced down to lower elevations where uh, the snowfall is not as deep and they can access their groceries pretty much. And so this year, we did not have that. Uh, we were having snowfalls every night of inch two inches maybe three inches but the problem is at high elevation and very cold temperatures the snow doesn't stick the wind just blows it right off the top of the mountain so there's never any accumulation up on the top on the high elevation so the sheep aren't coming down we got into 10 days i guess yeah first 10 days and i hadn't seen a sheep not a single one. Matter of fact, I was calling Ron <laughs> over in, in Douglas, Wyoming to, to find out if he had heard any reports anywhere else. But it wasn't until, like I said, that, that 10th day that we started getting eight inches, nine inches, you know, significant snowfall that what really started pushing them down. And it was like somebody flipped a light switch. One day there were no sheep. The next day there were two, three, four next day there's 20 the next day there's 50 and you know by the time I, I left out of there we were talking about 70 maybe 80 sheep and the, you could tell the rut was in full swing i mean they were bashing heads and chasing the girls and all that good stuff which is the stuff i wanted unfortunately by the time i got to the point where i had to start taking the workshop people out the sheep had not come down to the area that I really wanted them to come down to. They they kind of hung up in an area where it was just grass. And so the background and the foreground was just a very short grass, which I think is called smooth brome, I think is what the name of it is. And so, I mean, even though it is historically over 12,000 years, it is a natural habitat for them to be in and a natural place for them to feed. It just doesn't look real sexy. You know, it doesn't look like that iconic 
Rocky Mountain bighorn sheep because there are no rocks in the shots. So I was unable to film them anywhere near a rock. But, you know, as we started the workshops, the the people, you know, they, they had never even seen a bighorn sheep. So they were stoked out of their minds and got a lot of great shots. I mean, you know, there were there were opportunities where they, they had rams come up within uh, 20 yards, maybe, maybe less than that. And they were getting head shots and just, you know, and we were sitting with them for two and three, four hours at a time. So, so you know, that was absolutely amazing. I just, I didn't come away with the stuff I really wanted. So you know, that means I'm gonna have to go back, but you know, you can't, you can do your homework, you can plan a trip, you can, you know, do all your research, where animal is supposed to be, where they historically are, places, you know, talk to people, you can do all the planning and you, but you cannot do anything about the weather. You can't do a thing about it. Uh, you know, we planned all year for this and who knew that the snows were going to be two weeks late getting there. So, you know, it, they did show up, but it was a little bit too, too late for me, but I did come away with some, uh, you know, just because they were in grass and not rock, it didn't stop me. I still filmed uh, quite a bit of stuff, but you know, for the documentary, I still need to go back and and kind of do that again. I think next year I'm going to kind of spread it out. Uh, I, well, number one, I'm not going to have something that I had that's pressing for me to do immediately following like a workshop. Uh, I'm going to go out there and I'm going to hit uh, three or four places that I know that the sheep frequent that time of year and just stick with it, you know, until I get it. Because it was just a matter of weather. And, and if I could have waited another 10 days, man, I, you know, those sheep right now, as we speak, are all over those rocks, exactly where I want them. Um, so, and, you know, if I can get them where they normally are, the cool thing about that is that you have such a variety of backgrounds. I mean, I can get them with snow-capped mountains as the background. I can get them with beautiful striations of red rock. You know, I can get, you know, the, the real rugged, acute, you know, rocks, cliffs and stuff. So, so you know, you just get that variety and get them in the river even so yeah so looking forward to that but uh the other thing that i did really enjoy while i was out there was the mule deer rut so that's going on simultaneously with the bighorn sheep rut and so i did come away with some really unique stuff with the uh mule deer they were they were rutting at the same time and the, again this was down in the dubois area uh, on the whiskey mountain uh bighorn sheep range i one afternoon uh i found a little small herd of four or five does and I eased between two big boulders trying to kind of conceal myself and that I know of they didn't even know I was there so I got set up they were feeding along they fed up closer to me closer closer and closer and uh and then all of a sudden this decent little buck appears out of nowhere and he starts chasing the the does around and he's lip curling and trying to taste those pheromones in the air and he just thought he was the man. And this went on for uh, at least an hour of him just chasing around. He thought he was the only man in the area. All of a sudden, I noticed he just locked up. I uh, threw his head up. He looked back down this draw where I couldn't, I couldn't see from my vantage point. But I could tell something had his attention more so than those girls. And so I said, okay, the only thing I know of is either a predator or a bigger buck. I 
panned the camera over and just left a little room in the, to the bottom right of the screen there to see because that was kind of the area he was watching real intently. And it wasn't 10 seconds after I got the camera set up and had it rolling. You just see antlers just emerging from behind a hill. And when he comes up, I mean, he is a huge mule deer. And I'll, I'll never the rest of my life forget this particular buck. He was so pissed off and so rutting so hard, his ears were completely laid down against his neck. I mean, that's, that's moose behavior. That's elk behavior that you see when they are really pissed off or, you know, really, you know, in the rut hard. Uh, he came up toward that guy, snot dripping out of his nose. And when he made a big circle around this little guy, the little guy immediately took off and went back down in the hill where the big guy came from. And when he turned sideways to me, there was just, there was no neck at all. It just looked like body all the way up to his head. His neck was so swollen. Um, I just, like I say, it was a moment I will never, ever, I've never seen a buck, you know, with that kind of behavior before. I've seen signs of the rut. We've all seen signs of the rut, but not like this. And so, and I captured it all on film, you know, so it was, it was you know, I was really psyched about that. The part that I did miss was the fight. Uh, so he followed the little guy back down into the draw and so I knew what was getting ready to happen. Well, I thought I knew what was going to happen. And I couldn't see anything. I didn't want to scare the herd off. Uh, so I had, but I knew I had to move. So I eased up and started moving down to my right behind a draw so I could look up behind the hill that they went back over. And it wasn't, I don't know, five, 10 seconds after I dropped the tripod. And started getting the uh, the tripod level. The fight was over. As I was approaching, I could hear all the clanking of the antlers going on, and it was just I was like, uh, I wanted to run so bad, but I knew if I ran, I was going to scare every deer in the area off. I knew I would stop the fight, and I wasn't going to get it anyway. So I just you know just stayed my pace, eased down, set up, and it was over. And, but that's the way it goes. Right. So, but, that's uh, totally the way it goes. Yeah. Yeah. But it was incredible. And now, you know, I've, I've got the video, I'll put it in the show notes, uh, so everybody can see it, you know, we'll put that on YouTube as well, but, uh, but yeah, it was really good. Um, you know, the trip, even though the main focus, both through the workshops and through the stuff I was trying to film for the documentary, uh, was bighorn sheep. You know, we got great mule deer stuff. We actually got the famous 399. Uh, grizzly bear over in the Tetons uh, with two cubs on a elk kill. And we had her for two hours in full sun in the snow. Uh, it was absolutely amazing. And it was one of those, um, get us on a different subject, but you know, we talk about respecting animals and we also talk about these, these uh, rain, developing uh, a relationship with rangers and biologists and stuff. Well, uh, when we got to 399, there was a, a ranger there. Uh, his name is Matt, and I don't mind sharing that because Matt needs to be recognized for 
the way he handles situations with the general public in a park setting. Uh, we were at we're at the base of the Tetons, Grand Teton National Park, and most situations that I walk up in a park setting, the rangers have gotten so almost militant acting, and it's not. I'm not blaming a ranger. Um, I'm saying that the public, the general public has made them this way because they do some really stupid things. And so the Rangers, they, they react to that. They, they go into a situation expecting the worst situation, you know, people trying to save uh, bison calves by putting them in the back of their minivans and stuff like that. But don't Matt do it. Didn't do that. Yeah. Don't, <laughs> don't do, do that. Don't do that. <laughs> bad, bad, bad. So Matt didn't do that. So he rolled up to the situation. There was about 30 photographers already there. We were all together, kind of shoulder to shoulder, but we were all the same distance. And we were about 75 yards from the bear. Now, you're supposed to be 100. Matt looked at this. He looked at us. He looked at the situation. He got his rangefinder out. He checked the distance. And he said, you know what? He said, 75 yards. In this situation, you know, she's everybody's behaving, meaning all the photographers, everybody's behaving. The The cubs are, are not being disturbed. They're sitting there feeding. Uh, none of the bears are going anywhere because it's a kill. And so they're going to be on that kill until they finish it. And so she'd only been on it uh, about a day so far. So she had probably another day, maybe a day and a half to go. So nobody was going anywhere. Everybody was behaving. And he said, you know what? It's 75 yards. Everybody's behaving. I'm cool with this. If they move closer or if they move off the kill or if we change their behavior, I'm going to ask everybody to step back, please. And he said, but as long as everything stays the same, I'm cool with this. And you know what? He was just as calm and insensible about the situation. He actually looked at the situation, read, read what was going on and said, everybody's doing what they're supposed to be doing. This is an okay situation. I'm going I'm to let everybody stay here and shoot. And so, you know, it worked. Uh, he was actually encouraging people, you know, come over here and get you a good shot. And so anyway, I can digress on something like that, but I, I do feel it's important to uh, reward people in their jobs when they, I feel like they do it properly. And so, uh, but anyway, so props to Matt, the ranger. I don't know his last name, but anyway, everybody came away with amazing shots of that. So you had a question, Mark? I do. I do. Okay. Matt, would, Matt wouldn't have been about five foot 10 with dark hair, would he? Because there was a Matt in yes. Denali for years who has now moved to another national park. And I don't know where. And he was a phenomenal uh, wildlife interpreter or technician and maybe ranger now mm -hmm. um, up there. The same level of common sense and courtesy and just reading a situation. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Odds are it's not. But it's it's nice to hear those stories from the field. Yeah, for sure. But, uh, but yeah, so, you know, that was a, a great opportunity that we, we – you know, we weren't even planning on, you know, we weren't planning to take people to see grizzly bears because that's always a gamble. Right. But uh, but, you know, in wildlife photography and in situations like this, especially out west, you get so many opportunities. You know, you're going to run across all kinds of cool things. I saw my first por porcupine. Uh, we, we photographed porcupine in the snow. That was awesome. Awesome. But uh, but yeah, you know, and then, then your, your average stuff like coyotes and uh, you know, pronghorn and all that kind of good stuff. A few elk scattered about. Yeah. Oh, had some gr great, great opportunities with uh, with moose. It's um, it's kind of funny. So we always tell our people uh, that before a workshop, you say, listen, now everything 
that you're going to see, everything we're going to photograph can kill you. And it's not likely going to happen, but it can. It, you know, it's, it's important to let people understand the danger of some of these animals. And we told them, you know, if, um, you know, we're going to be out working with big bull moose and, you know, if me or Jared tell you, okay, back up, you know, you react immediately. You don't stop and finish taking your pictures and fold your tripod up and just casually. No, you react immediately. And so we were, uh, we found three big bull moose and they had been fighting. And all of a sudden they decided to turn and move to another location. Well, they started coming straight at us and the biggest bull was in the front. And I told everybody, I said, now, if you get right here and you know, you can get a shots of, of this big bull coming straight at you. And he was fine. His ears were up and, you know, he wasn't swaying his antlers and there was no signs of any distress or, or that he was upset. And, um, so they kept coming, kept coming. And then, they would get about 35 yards and that's when I noticed one ear dropped and then he had kind of swayed a little bit. And I said, all right, guys, let's just go ahead and move back. And, and there was one lady that wasn't moving quite as fast as I thought she should. I told her, I said, uh, we need to move. We need to move now. Cause you know, that five seconds that that moose has already traveled 10 yards, you know, because they have such big footsteps, but uh, uh, strides, I should say. Um, but it's just funny, you know, the way people react and the way they um, react to after I tell them something. So it is kind of funny see people's eyes when they finally look up and they see uh, this huge animal and they're actually looking up at it. <laughs> so, uh, but anyway, but it all was good. You know, it was a good learning experience for everybody. It's a, a lesson that they'll take with them the rest of their lives. So, uh, and make them better fieldsmen, you know, and that's one of my favorite. Yeah. Yeah. The experiences they're seeing animals that they've never seen before. You got to see an animal you've never seen before. That's yep. it. For me, whenever I took my kids out, it was all about the first, and you were in a unique area, a unique part of the state, too, for the project that you're working on, because it's it's one of my favorite places in the state to go, because not only do you have access to all the wildlife, but also, I mean, you can walk and you know exactly that you're walking the same steps as as those people that were here natively walked, mm -hmm. because there's there's one area, there's a big hillside, and there's probably, I've never counted them all, and I don't know that anybody's ever found them all but probably over 50 or 60 different um mm -hmm. petroglyphs mm -hmm. yeah we rocks. found those mm -hmm. yeah i saw some pictures that you had posted and you know the area that you were in there's a a band of natives that they call them the sheep eaters and they would set these elaborate kind of funnel traps and they'd run these big herds of sheep into these funnel traps and and once they got them to the choke point and that's where they would make the kill and they, you know, they made their bows with bighorn sheep horns. They'd wet it, mm -hmm. stretch it out, and mm -hmm. they would soak them in water, stretch them out. And they would make these short uh, bows that, that had like a hundred hundred pound draw. So they're really short, really powerful. Yeah, you know, uh, Ron, that, that area is covered in evidence of oh, the yeah. Shoshone Indians and uh yeah we so we found the petroglyphs and you know you and I actually talked about it a little bit you know 
there's an area there's might be 50 or 60 but you know after i talked to you i was back in there in that same general area and i bet you i found another 20 so that's just what we could access um right. i bet you there's hundreds in that area uh and one of the very really cool things that i was able to film which i will use in the documentary is i actually found a big horn sheep petroglyph which is amazing because then it ties my whole story together. You know, talking about the funnel areas where the sheep eaters or the Shoshone hunted the sheep, uh, there are actually still today the old stone hunting blinds. So the Shoshone would take uh, slabs of stone and stack them up in a round circle that are about six feet in diameter and about three feet or four feet high. And then just pile old uh, sagebrush limbs and, and trunks on there, just random wood, brush it up. And uh, they would actually hunt from that ground blind, the, uh, the, the sheep, you know, which was, was really cool to see. I mean, actually stand in one of those blinds and know that my feet are standing in the exact spot that, you know, a native did. 2,000 years, well, 2,000 would be the earliest, uh, 2,000 plus years ago hunting sheep, you know, and I'm going to tell you, for me, it really, it just sent cold chills down my spine. It was just an amazing experience to be able to do that. And that's the second one I've run across. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it's a great place. So, so yeah, the trip was amazing. And, uh, you know, when I left South Carolina, it was summer. When I came back to South Carolina, it was winter now. So. <laughs> <laughs> can, can I ask you a question about the documentary without any specifics, yeah. of course? Um, right. The timeline. So since it didn't work out for this fall's Bighorn Rut, the documentary is that far ahead in planning that you can still fit it in next autumn and in include the footage. Yeah, no problem. No problem. This That's is cool. uh, this this is one that, that I'm heading up, that I'm producing. So I do have the luxury of time on this. I hope to have it done in two years. Nice. So. And uh, the other question I have was as far as you're shooting on a red for documentaries like that in modern time, what do you shoot at as far as the footage? You know, I know there's 4K, 6K, 8K. What's mm -hmm. what's the ideal necessary recording? Well, there's no ideal. Number one, you definitely want you, you want to shoot the, the highest resolution you can simply because the footage then becomes less future proof. Uh, because as as we progress, you know, uh, the, the resolutions are going to get greater. And what we have now, which is HD, which is 1920 by 1080, that's kind of the standard. And really, that's all that can be broadcasted at this point. Now, I'm talking about traditional broadcasts like satellite and cable, that kind of stuff. You know, now with YouTube and online viewing platforms, you know, you can watch a 4K uh, movie. Um, on, no problem. But so to answer your question, there is no perfect, but mm -hmm. the higher the resolution, the better. The red that I'm using does 6K, but the sweet spot for the best image on that camera is 5.5K. So I shoot, I generally shoot at 5.5. The other reason that I shoot at the high, one of the highest resolutions I can is because it gives you a lot more options in editing. So used to be if you wanted to have to shoot a proper sequence of let's just say a bighorn sheep in a fight okay so you either got to have multiple camera guys with multiple different lens setups from different angles or you know you had to shoot a fight 
and then change the lens or zoom in and get go for you know go for your wide, go for your mid, go for your tight, go for your real tight detail stuff. Uh, then you know real wide stuff for establishing shots. Well, with higher resolution, you're able to pull a lot of those angles from the same footage and shoot it by yourself. So, so you can shoot it once I mean, and then crop in and, and use yep. that footage for a tight sequence. Right. Exactly. Nice. Exactly. Okay. So um, now it's always better to have multiple angles to go with that. But the more angles you have, you can cut those down, you know, to to different resolutions as well. Well, I guess you should say frames. So so aside from that crop ability, is there anything else that makes 5.5K the sweet spot that you described for that camera? Like, is there well, no, it's just for that particular camera, that particular sensor, you know, they, the, and I, and I didn't, I didn't learn that on my own. I actually got that from the working with the BBC because they, they test every camera, every sensor, and they push it to its limits and they find out where it's best shot at. And so uh, the 6K sensors are best shot at 55 uh, resolution so and now is that just for the gearheads out there is that specific to red then versus that's other specific players? to and that that's specific to the red dragon okay um, right so i was just gonna ask you so if you can call up the old bbc and say hey <laughs> what what is the monstro 8k vista vision sensor where's that sweet spot because i have no clue you know i'll I shoot an 8k i'll shoot Okay, if you'll email me or text me tomorrow, that'd be great. Cause, yeah, <clears throat> I'm running wild with that thing, man. I'll go all over the place. Yeah, I don't go well, lower than know, 4K, but yeah, I, yeah. I mean, you can shoot with whatever resolution you want with that thing. Uh, and not to jump ahead, but uh, in I believe December, late December or January, uh, we're gonna have a guy on um, Mark McEwen. Uh, who works for the BBC, and um, you know he has all those juicy details. So, very good. I have another question. So you've done this. You said seven or eight years. Mm -hmm. What percentage of that time do you have the snow right, and what percentage of that time do you get to see fights or headbutting? Not necessarily fights, but just that headbutting behavior, because. That's that quintessential bighorn sheep thing, right? That's what you Absolutely. want to show, especially for a documentary. Would you say like four out of the eight years or four out of the seven years, you've actually seen it and could film it? Or is this one of those deals where it's like, it's just, because I've seen it probably four or five times. I'm not a huge sheep guy, so I'm not going out for sheep every weekend or whatever. Right. But, you know, I love to, to film them. But I'm I'm not there all the time, and I've seen it probably four or five times. So for me in Colorado, it's it's a difficult thing to to kind of track down. So I would say that I mean I have seen the fighting and you know the headbutting every year at some point. Now it may have been one crash that I saw and didn't see anything else the, the other two or three weeks I was there. Um, or it may have been continuous, you know, while I was there. But as far as shootable situations, I would say three out of seven years, um, it was shootable. Now, as far as the the weather, now the weather has always been dead on the money. Uh, like I said, I mean, you can, it's pretty predictable. If you go the, you know, starting that first week of November, that's when it's really starting. And as you get toward the mid, mid November, I mean, it's, it's wide open. So, 
Yeah, and the peak actually, I think the peak is not till the last week of November, the first week of December, actually, from what I understand. So I have, I'm not even been there during the peak time. So, and I've been, I mean, uh, another part of the state that has a bighorn sheep uh, in the winter grounds is just up the road from where I grew up. And for, I'd say, since 1998. I've been out watching the sheep, photographing sheep, and I have never, ever caught it. I really? Never. Did you I, say I mean, 1998? Did That's I say that? Last century? As right, in, I just poking some yes, fun at you. Yes. As in last <laughs> century. I've, not once. And, and It's commitment. You know, well, it's not like I was there every day, but no, know, no, it's it's take worth a going. few days yeah, and go. Yeah, and I'm just, you know, I've seen them hit yeah. once, but not like fighting. It's just, you know, some young rams and they're just knocking heads a little bit. But it, yeah, I've never caught it perfect in that. That's why that, I'm so curious because I know, I mean, I do spend a fair amount of time out there, and some years a lot of time, and it's just, man, you just got to have the right situation and the right rams and that. To get the real serious stuff, you see a lot of little ones doing that little, yeah. and some even right. the big ones are just kind of doing that it. posturing. But to get that monster crack that you just sounds like a gunshot going off, and they just are dazed. And the one I saw, the noses were bleeding on both of them. I mean, they just were flat going to it. It's that's a rare sight, I think. I don't know. I mean, that's what so I was now, asking. Now, Mike, let me let me clarify what I what I was telling you though. Um, a lot, a lot of those that I did that I have been seeing were the smaller rams. Now you didn't ask me that. You didn't ask me to qualify whether it was the the full rams or not. But that I have seen that many times as well as the you know a full curl ram going at it to, you know when they hit you see the shock waves going through their body and that that's that's actually one of the shots that I really want to get. I want to get. You, know, you have you know, to get it. There's no, yeah. no, not getting it. Cause that's what tells that story. Right. right. I want to get it shot on the red though, in super slow motion, you know, so we yep. can see all that, you know, that slow-mo of all that shock wave going through their bodies. And, you know, when they come back and there's, you know, snow being knocked out of their fur and that kind of stuff. So, uh, and, you know, and it's just, like I say, you got to, got to be put in the time there. Right. So, that's what it's all about. So I want to ask you guys, put up your hand if you have seen the Mountain Dew commercial. No, you have Mike. You say, okay. Well, we're going to have to put this link in our show notes because there's a Mountain Dew commercial where clearly, for some reason, there's a full-curl bighorn ram who really has an affinity for Mountain Dew. And there's, <laughs> and there's this dude. Now, not that I'm pro Mountain Dew or anything like that, but this is dude who really wants it too. And this video is hilarious. So in the show notes, we'll have to put a put a link to that <laughs> so people can watch it. This is on my to-do list. I have filmed bighorn rams in different situations, but usually tying it into late September, hitting the elk rut, hitting the bighorns. And there's some head butting, like you said, Mike, where it's you know, even the big full curl guys, but it's just a bit of an annoyance, just a tap. Not well, the, it's just like a posturing thing. It's not even like a fight. It's just like dominating. I'm a little bit bigger than you are. Just scooch away from me kind of thing, right? That yeah, or they walk past and they just kind of turn and just knock each other. It's, yeah. They don't back yeah. up and line up. So it's something that, you know, as we map out this podcast, there's des there are destinations that I want to go to. I want to go to some sexy, out-of-the-way, crazy places in the next year or two for this podcast that people 
haven't been to to tell some cool mm -hmm. stories. But there's also highlights like your trip, Doug, that I'd like to do. And I've never been on a shoot to do the actual peak of the Bighorn Rut. And there are some places in, in the northern Rockies. And I, I don't know how it would compare to Wyoming for backdrops. But I, I know that the backdrops are phenomenal. I've seen footage from there. And I want to do it. I want to get it on our list at some point. So maybe next year. I'm yeah, hoping. absolutely. Let's let's plan on it. Like I said, next year, I don't plan on having, you know, something pressing right behind me trying to do that. That way I have the flexibility to stay longer, move to another location or just do whatever I need to do. But uh, but there's several good, really good locations. And, you know, I mean, out out west, you know, four hour five hour drive is nothing well i'd like to do the, this place in the canadian rockies because i don't think many people go there and and it's it's a hike you know it's a it's an hour vertical hike to get up it's doable it's locating them and it's they're usually these bands of rams up there and perform mm -hmm. and i saw a documentary created out of this area that was incredible the slow motion they got of these big guys headbutting and as a biologist now there's something uh, based on your experience in the field and since i haven't actually witnessed the peak of the bighorn rut but filmed them pre-rut instead what's what stuck with me after watching this documentary is sometimes how these big boys engage one another and i don't know if you've seen this so i hope this doesn't sound yeah, totally silly okay so they they've got this big scrotum right bighorn rams impressive dudes and the other dude will come up behind and just take his front hoof and give him a little tap saying okay i want to i want to have a little little scrap with you is that is have you seen that absolutely so how yeah. rude how that's not yeah. rules of engagement no. you don't oh, get yeah. below so, the belt no the, what they do so what they'll do they'll they'll approach each other first and generally one will come up behind the other and he'll actually lay his his chin across the other one's back and that's kind of a hey i'm here i'm i'm ready to get it on and uh I so yeah, as in fight, and then uh, and then if he doesn't immediately arise to the occasion, then yeah, he'll kick him in the balls, and uh, as as in to say and that'll do it. I really want to take you, and uh, and then if that doesn't, he'll come around to the side of him, and he'll give him another kick uh, in the ribs, and generally by that point, you know he irritated the other one enough that uh, that they'll rear back, but a lot of times you get one that's just submissive and he just turn and walk away and he'll move on to the next guy you know so isn't that interesting so, though i mean all it the is animals, amazing we i've never seen another big mammal do that to engage with another i mean and i, I really have, you know it was, <laughs> we, it was okay in college this is from the guy. enforcement <laughs> days <laughs> in college <laughs> <laughs> Okay, I I believe it. All right, sorry. I was I was, I was thinking more of the wildlife we photograph, but yeah, yeah. rules of engagement. Obviously, the bighorns have a different set of rules, and it, oh and it yeah, works it's a, for them. it's amazing to watch. It is absolutely amazing to watch. And like you said, you yeah. know, you don't you don't get that kind of behavior from any of the other ungulates. You really yeah. don't. You know, uh, I mean, they all fight, but you don't get that lead up to you know. Uh, that initiation of the fight. So. No, it's an interesting uh, behavioral evolution. That yeah. is, you know, I wonder if doll sheep do it. They probably do. Yeah, but oh, yeah. I've seen doll yeah. sheep do it. Have you? Okay. Yeah. I think wow. they all the all the species of sheep do it. I think the desert bighorns will do it. The 
Well, it that just, works. I could see it working. You know. Yeah. All right. I got a trivia question. <laughs> trivia question for you guys. What animal is the mountain goat more closely related to? Wait, do we have options or we're just the mountain goat? No. This is not multiple choice. All right. Let's say a bighorn sheep. I was going to get No. Go ahead. I I have a guess. A moose or an antelope? Pronghorn antelope. That that was my guess. I was going to say antelope. Is it antelope? Look at the horns. It's antelope. Yep. All right. Antelope. Winner, winner. I don't know who yeah. got it first. Ron. Yeah, I think Ron. Yeah, Ron wins today's trivia round, folks. That today's my, today's uh, prize will be. Oh, absolutely. No, nobody, the nuts. Yeah, nobody's close <laughs> enough to do it. <laughs> uh, no, guys, that, that's all I got, guys. It, you know, it was a wonderful good. trip. Yeah, it was. It was. It was good. Looking forward to next year. I, I, See, well, I think I, we ought to plan that for next year because if you could be out there for three weeks solid and we're all keyed in on it, you know, I guess you don't have to do three weeks, but if you were there Thanksgiving, uh, you know, United States Thanksgiving, not the Canadian mm-hmm. Thanksgiving, all the way through <laughs> the first week in November. You got it. You know, and then the cool thing too is you're in a cool spot. So you can get the porcupines, you can get elk, you can get pronghorn, you can get whatever else happens. Um, mountain lion dens when you st- stay at Ron's <laughs> house, right? So, you know, who knows? We need to plan on that, though. Yeah, we've got yeah. To and I always go to a different part of the state because it, the area where you guys are at, there's more sheep, but they don't tend to be as as big. You know, the trade-off is you don't have the numbers, so you don't see those interactions all the time because you might have, you know, one mature ram that's he's kind of got the pick of the the pick of the use mm. and he doesn't have to fight for him yeah so what about this what about dueling podcasts on the same podcast but we split up into two teams and two of us oh. will go to the northern rockies and two go there yeah. and see what see what we get out of it that might and be we can, and can throw well, it yeah. we do that or else we just do one week in canadian rockies and then we drive down and do one week in the the wyoming rocky what makes me think that is the place that i know of in the canadian rockies traditionally has huge full coral heavy rams yeah. well, i know exactly what you're talking about and i'm kind of scared i mean that is like november there is got to be a ton of snow already and i'm thinking man and if it's an hour hike up there carrying 40 pounds of red camera gear is not yeah that's why you have friends on expedition that's why you have friends too yeah I don't, I don't have that heavy a pack. You know, you mentioned that when we were chatting this afternoon, planning all kinds of great content, you know, to talk about what we carry. So since I don't have so much weight on rare occasions, I'm willing to do that for you. All right. Just, <laughs> just to have you there. All right. I'm in. So that means Ron gets to be my mule. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We'll, we'll see. <laughs> or like you say, you know, the ideal would part of it in one location apart in another and tell the stories together that could be interesting yeah. for all kind of things right yeah. it would be awesome a, we need to put a wager in there too yeah we can we, wager we you know what i'd like those. to know though too is is that canadian group of sheep are they are they a week earlier you know is that wyoming is that mm-hmm. couple of weeks is it possible that it's a week earlier just because of the latitude difference i don't know i mean i don't know if it would be that much different or not 
I've I've heard the third week in November is peak, but I we would definitely want to research that to make sure we were as close as could be. Yeah, in that other that other part of the state, people claim that you know the peak. If you had to pick one week, the second week in December is okay is the week to go. So yeah, I mean it it probably varies by geographic location well, and latitude. Potentially. We could do both, and when you know we could yeah. do the Canadian one. On the early side, not early side, but it'll be a little earlier for rut, perhaps. Then we can tell the whole story of the pain in the butt of moving all our gear and, <laughs> and persons to Wyoming and recent and setting it and doing it. Yeah, that'd be, that'd be well. And if training. we drove it, it would be quite a journey. It would be a yeah. blast because you're yeah. going through just awesome country all the way from the, here to there or there yeah. to here. And awesome. in between, there's kind of an epic sheep spot as yeah. a stopover too. So I haven't cool. been there. Yeah. Woo. All right, let's do getting it. more exciting by the moment. All right. Late November through December. Let's lock it in. Sounds good. Well, thanks, Doug. That was that was an exciting story, and I'm glad that it worked out. You know, like you say, it's not always exactly what we can anticipate, but you got all kinds of other animals and workshops worked out and fun experience for all but the one lady who had to look up at the moose. <laughs> <laughs> for sure. Right on. So just want to thank all of you. Feel free to give us any feedback, any positive comments, and also questions or other topics you'd like to see covered in the future because we pay attention to those on all platforms, all social media, and our website as well. So until next time, you've been listening to Wild and Exposed Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. <laughs>